that somebody could help you get to. Uh, but our elementary kids will be with us this week. If you want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you can do that also at this time. We are in a series that is talking about being disillusioned. And we'll, we'll touch on this a little more as we go forward. But to be disillusioned is to be disappointed that what you thought something was going to be didn't really turn out to be all that. This is a word that is used in our culture and even in church circles many times. And it's something that is not merely some faddish idea or cliche, but it's, it's where we get in life. Things just don't feel like what they're cut out to be. And so we're taking a time at the beginning of this year to talk about that, not in a defeated, discouraged, you know, depressive way, but in a way that's real and honest and calls us to go forward in the walk of following Jesus. As a church, we believe that God has called us to actually be a church, that he didn't save people as silos to kind of just have a personal relationship with him and occasionally find random believers that you can get along with to do life together. No, we believe, as we saw last week, if you weren't here, is that Jesus calls people to commit to a local group of believers in all the mess that that brings. And we saw last week, if you weren't here, you can check that out, but in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the church at Corinth really tests that. If there was ever a church, you would sort of say, maybe the church just makes things worse. Then look at God's love and the love the Apostle Paul shows for Corinth. And as a church, we want to call people to commit to to four things. We don't have a, a call to commitment that we hope is legalistic, that is some sort of like legal way to protect ourselves if something happens. It's not about all that silly stuff you find in churches. But it's just a call that we believe that we should gather because we're family, that we should grow because we're disciples, that we should go because we're, we've been sent, we're missionaries, and we should give because we've been made servants. And we're going to talk about these, these next... We talked last week about the church as a whole, and today we're going to talk about this identity that we share as a church as disciples to grow, and we'll touch on those others in coming weeks. And so the, today we're going to do that from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. So if you would read with me. Paul says, through the Spirit, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on divisions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on behalf of my own, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would give us truth from your word as you have, and that the truth would set us free. We ask God that you would help us to be present here as you are present. We pray, God, that you would convict us where we need convicting. You would comfort us where we need comforting. We pray that you would change us. We pray, God, now against any mere exercise of the mere intellect. But we pray, God, that our head, our heart, and our hands would be united together by your spirit for your glory. In this moment, God, do something that changes us to be more conformed into the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. There's some things you can remember really clearly, and one thing that I remember, when I was around 17 years old or so, I, I would have been the person who did not know what the word liturgy meant, and I would have been against any, I was my, where I was at, I would have been against any type of like us reading a written prayer. But anyway, I remember walking into school, I was a follower of Jesus at that point, and I'd kind of created this sort of prayer liturgy, like this, this repetition of a prayer. And I remember walking in, I had on a coat, I don't know why I'm telling you this meaningless details, it's just vivid to me. My, I have an uncle that's lived overseas, and somehow he came up with this coat that was made out of yak fur, and I like to dress weird or whatever, and so I remember walking in with this yak coat on, probably had a couple packs of uh, nugget sauce from McDonald's in my inside pocket, more meaningless details. But anyway, here we go. So I'm walking into school, and I remember I started this sort of, this repetition of praying, God, please forgive me for my lust, my laziness, and my gluttony, for my doubt and unbelief, for my fear and my worry, for my selfishness and my pride. They were just, those sound like kind of common areas, but through my prayer, it was like these are the areas that I really struggle with. And I remember that walking in there. I remember these, these big hopes and, and dreams that like I pray these prayers and these things will just kind of go away. Some 20 years later, I can remember equally vividly this past week coming before God and saying, God, would you please forgive me and help me with my lust and my laziness and my gluttony? with my doubt and unbelief, with my fear and my worry, with my selfishness and my pride. And that can be so discouraging. I mean, for 20 years, I've been like really deep in God's Word. About as much education as you could imagine. Really deep in training and ministry in the local church. Really deep in trying to help other people understand what it means to, to have freedom and victory in their life. From sin and healing from woundedness. And deliverance from lies and the enemy. And here I am still as needy as I ever was before. still fighting, still praying, 
still pleading with God. I wonder if any of you can relate. And I wonder if this leads to any of us at certain times maybe being tempted to being disillusioned, disappointed that something wasn't what you thought it would be. I thought if I read the right books, I thought if I gave myself with enough energy and enough effort to all of these things that the church seems to have to offer, that I would arrive. That I would now just wake up in the morning not having to pray for those things, but I would just wake up with this sort of peace for how now I was just going to go help other people with those things. Now life is not like this all the time, but I think all of us know, or at least some of us or most of us, that it can be very disillusioning at times when we consider our growth as disciples. Again, I'm not here to be totally negative. We have great times, great triumphs. We have moments and seasons of victory. We have sins that we really do get past to a certain degree. But sometimes those come back. Sometimes they don't go away. And we're left with this self-accusation or the enemy's voice in our head. Why am I still so weak? Why do I still have this mental disability, this physical issue, this emotional or social issue? Why still these hardships? Why these limitations? Why am I still confessing the same sins year in and year out? Why these still battles? Why do my relationships continue to follow these same dysfunctional patterns? Am I even saved? Am I just a waste of time? Why should I keep trying when it doesn't seem like I may never change? This can lead to a lot of God questioning too. When people get disillusioned with their discipleship, they start to think, well, since I feel like I'm doing all the right stuff and I'm not getting what I thought I should get out of it, then maybe there's not a God. Or maybe at least not the God that I thought was God through His Word. Or maybe he doesn't care. Or maybe I'm... Something, I have thoughts like this. Maybe I'm Jonah, and if the church just would throw me out of the boat, everybody else could grow. Maybe it's, I, I'm just a problem. And then maybe we start to not, if we don't question God, we blame others. Why won't anybody disciple me? Why didn't anybody disciple me? Why don't people give me what I need? If other people would just be what I need them to be, then I would finally be all that I could be. We get into comparison. Whether it's Instagram, Facebook, whatever, social media or real life, we think, man, look at that mom who can do it all. She can, she can do all that and she just grows. She's just hashtag blessed. Look at that person who had, you know, scored this high score on the ACT who's in all these extracurricular activities at school. And they seem to just have this joy about them. And I feel like I'm dying on the inside and I just have to fake and pretend when I go to, to my clubs or my activities at school or my classes. What's wrong with me? 
And then if we're not careful, that comparison and that blame and that questioning, all that stuff that comes out of our disillusionment with our discipleship, it leads to this word, contempt. When you have contempt for something, it means you have a disregard for it. You don't think it's worth the time, worth the effort. And so you begin, through your disillusionment of discipleship, you begin then to have a contempt for discipleship. So you start to think, what's the point? Why should I spend time in God's Word? Why should I spend time in prayer? Why should I invest in the life of a local church? What is the point? Life is just not going to get any better. It's just going to be hard. So who cares? If you've not been there, and I'm no prophet, I would say you will be there at some point in your life. And the church hasn't always been good at talking about things like this. When I say church, I'm not like this person other churches. We're taking ownership for this. At having a view of discipleship that talks to people about the times in their lives, not when they're ready to go, you know, attack the enemy, but when they hit these seasons we may call the wall. When you find yourself in that numb, dull, disillusioned state, in the history of the church sometimes... Versions of this have been talked about as the dark night of the soul. Or spiritual depression. And you show up to stuff, and you're just like, why, why should I be a part of this church? I have no energy. I have no desire. I don't see the point. Well, some good news for us, and we'll get to more, is if you track discipleship through the whole story of God, if you know your word, you will find very quickly, you are not alone. What I have just described is not the exception. So not to burst your bubble, you're not unique. I would say you're a human. Living in a fallen world, trying to understand what it means to be a follower of the true King Jesus. And yet even better news is not that you're not unique, is that God has promised and planned and purposed to work not in spite of your disillusionment, but through it. We touched on this last week, but Paul says in Romans chapter 7, and again, much debate over whether he's talking about himself, pre-Christian, as a Christian, but I believe at least in some extent he's talking about his Christian experience. And here is the Apostle Paul saying, here I am still not doing what I wish I would do and doing the very things I don't want to do. Who will deliver me? And his only hope is Jesus. And that's our only hope today. Paul gives the church at Corinth grace because he knows he needs such grace. Not past, but present is that the gospel of God's grace is not a message merely for unbelievers, it's a message for all of us, for all of life. Not just in a forgiveness way, but in an enduring way. But we must submit to God's wielding of our weaknesses for the growth of our discipleship. That's what we're zeroing in on today through our text, to submit to God's wielding of our weaknesses for the growth of our discipleship, not the loss of it. Another way we could say this is we must follow our disillusionment into a deeper discipleship, not a debunked discipleship. 
We must follow our disillusionment into a deeper discipleship. And the good news we're going to see is we can, not into a debunked discipleship. How do we do that? The first way we do that is we have to understand is that God's design, His curriculum for our discipleship is going to be different than you thought. And it's going to probably be harder than you thought. And it's going to seem like that God is not helping you, but God is hurting you. The first thing we see here is that God does not allow Paul to rest on the profound experiences of his past. When he says this in verse 1, notice again, I must go on boasting. He's just taken all of chapter 11 to lay out all of these huge sacrifices that he's made for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. I wish we had time, but we don't, to go read them. I mean, this dude has went all in, has given his life. He has been willing to sacrifice again and again for the sake of being a disciple and for making disciples. And these, the, the false teachers around Corinth and even some in Corinth are doubting his legitimacy. They're saying Paul doesn't care. He's not the real deal. He's a fake. And so he's saying, well, if y'all want to go there, we can lay out a resumes all day long. Here's my legitimacy. And so here he's, he's, he's doing that again, but he's working towards his main point really in this whole section. What he's saying here is his profound sufferings and endurance aren't where he boasts. That's not qualify, what qualifies him. That's not what shows that he is the real deal. That's not what grows him. That's not where the glory of God is found. And then here he goes beyond his, experience, his past sufferings and sacrifice to this su- supernatural experience he has of God. I mean, this is amazing if we look in verses 1 through 6. He talks in kind of a convoluted way. He, he's talking about himself, but he, he does it in the third person. So it looks like he's talking about two people, but if we read this in its context here, we know he's talking about himself. And he, so he's saying like, third person me, this other dude... And me, caught up into the third heaven. All that's saying at that time, there was kind of just this, this cosmological viewpoint, I guess you would say, that there's the, the earth, then there's the heavens, the atmosphere, and then the third is the realm of God. So that's why he's saying, I was caught up into paradise. I was there. And this was such a powerful, supernatural, spiritual experience that was so great and I heard things and saw things that were so wonderful that I can't even tell you about it. Now that sounds like something you could boast in. And we know a lot of Christians and disciples and Christian leaders where that's where they want to boast. Look at me, chapter 11, and all I've sacrificed and done. Look at me, chapter 12, and how I had this great supernatural spiritual experience that you didn't have, and so you're not on my level. Paul says, I I could boast as that first man. I mean, it's true, it happened, but I won't. He says in verse 6, I won't. because I don't want anyone to think more of me than what he sees in me or hears in me. Hears from me. But how is Paul able to not be that fool who boasts in those things? Well, for one, 
verse 7 says, God won't allow it. God won't allow it. Notice verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Conceit is the target. What is being conceited? It's being proud. It's exalting oneself above others. It's believing because of what you've done or what you've experienced in this context that somehow you are greater, you have more power, you have more position. Paul's not immune to this. If you know anything about Paul's story early on, he was a dude that liked to throw power around. He was obviously a, very, a man of great initiative and passion and ambition because it says that he exceeded all of his contemporaries in his studies as a Pharisee. This was the person you would be envious of at school who did everything the best. Was promoted and acknowledged for it. Paul knows this is this is in his in his heart. And God in his grace will not allow it. So he gives Paul, because he loves Paul, a thorn in the flesh. Now the books are written voluminously, if that's a word, about what thorn in the flesh may mean. It could mean many things. It could be some type of, and the studies show, some type of actually like mental, kind of emotional issue that Paul wrestles with. It could have been his enemies who were following. Many people think this in the book of Numbers. The, the people were a thorn in the flesh to, to Moses. And Paul has these kind of Judaizers, these false teachers who are following him around everywhere. That could have been his thorn. It could have been some type of physical weakness with some people think maybe his eyesight. Or it just could have been some type of satanic attack in general. You know, where he's, where he's coming at Paul, whether with accusations or division or whatever it is. Some people want to drill that down, but I actually think that there's a reason why it's not correctly, um, definitely or specifically spelled out here. It's because it has a broader application. We're going to see later when Paul says, I'm content with my weakness says. So it seems like this is broad, and that's going to be important as we go to apply this. But whatever it is, this messenger of Satan has been given. Given by who? By God. Now that makes us step back and scratch our heads a little bit. We know from the scriptures that this is a gift. And James chapter 1 verse 18 tells us God only gives good gifts. This is a gift that keeps on giving, but it feels like more the gift that keeps on taking so what is the answer to that? Is it a gift that gives good things or is it a gift that's, is it something bad that takes? And the answer is yes. It's a messenger of Satan sent to harass him. Sometimes when we read God's word or we think about God's character or what God does or we experience our life, we're like, I don't, I can't sometimes feel like I can tell the difference between God or Satan. Is this God or Satan, Paul? The answer is 
Yes. Does that mean God is Satan? No. Does that mean Satan is God? No. But if we know the story of God, this shouldn't alarm us. Do you remember Job? The story of Job? Satan wants to pursue Job. God permits what Satan pursues. Sometimes for good purposes that are greater than the enemy's intention. We've got to have an understanding of God in life that deals with this. Ever how hard it is and whatever questions are left unanswered. Do you remember Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers? Go read the Joseph story. It's, hor- it's horrible what he went through and what he suffered. It was evil. And God always calls evil evil. He never calls it good. But in Genesis 50, 20, what Joseph says through the Spirit and the Word of God is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God sends this thorn in the flesh. He allows this attack to come upon Paul so that he would not become conceited. Notice this harassment. You have the familiar with the King James Version. He buffets him. We don't use that word a lot. There's a discouragement. There's a disillusionment. Paul thinks, look at all that I can do. I'm the smartest guy in the room. I can get things done. And God slows all that down. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can relate. One of the many disillusioning things in, in our marriage, my wife would attest, is us trying to learn to work together around the house. She is a very clean, orderly person, and I would fit in well in some of your dorm rooms, guys, with no problem. And, and I try to be helpful, and she's taught me a lot, and I've learned a lot, thank goodness. But... One of the things that's always so annoying is when I go to her and I say, Honey, how can I help? What's something that I can do? And you know what she always does? She always picks something I wasn't thinking about. She always picks the one thing I didn't want to do. It's horrible. I'm coming and I'm thinking in my mind, I'll do this, or I'll do this, or I'll do this, and then she, out of left field, comes up with this one thing that is not what I had planned. It is not in my comfort zone, to use that cliche, and it's just so annoying. You know why? Because when I come to her like that, I'm coming really from a position of power, I'm wanting to help. I'm wanting to do this. And now when she goes that route, the locus of power shifts. Now I'm going to have to choose, am I going to operate within my plan and for my purposes, or now am I going to have to submit myself to her plan and to her vision? I'm willing to help. I'm willing to grow on my terms. 
This is how we come to God as disciples. God, I want to grow. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm willing to sacrifice. I want the experiences. But if we're honest, we want it all on our terms. We want to get to write the syllabus for our discipleship. But we are not God. Sometimes I even start to specifically ask her now in very self-serving ways, hey, I'd like to help. Here are the things I'll... Could I do this, 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 or this? That is a great act of loving myself but making it look like I care. And this is how, if you're honest, some of you, if not all of you, have come to God in your discipleship. God, I'm willing to do all these things. And then God says, how about this? How about I show you this in your heart? How about I show you this in your relationships? How about I show you this in your dorm room? How about I show you this in your marriage? How about I show you this in your parenting? How about I show you this in your workplace? How about I show you this in your life? And we're like, whoa, 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 time out, God. I did not sign up for this. I will sacrifice. I will do whatever. But I can't do that. I heard somebody talking about, you know, working with a... I've never really played golf. I don't even know if that's how you say it, play golf. But anyway, is somebody that's good at golf, I'm sure some of you are, is if they find out what, like, their strength is. So this one guy said, well, it's my, my nine iron. And so what the, the golf coach or whatever did is he took the nine iron away. So now you're going to have to learn to play without your nine iron. And isn't that a picture of how God disciples us sometimes? We're coming in with this strength. And God says, not always, not in every way. We can talk about this more later. I'm always up for getting coffee. Y'all know I can't say everything in this time, even though I'm, I'm going to take your nine iron away. I'm going to take it away. And that's discipleship. The word discipline is in discipleship. And the Bible tells us the father disciplines the son or the daughter whom he loves. He didn't care about you. He just let you go on play and pretend with your life. If he didn't care about me, he would let me just be strong. Perform, manage. So I want to ask you, how has God disillusioned you in your discipleship? What harassment has been allowed? That's a strong word, isn't it? Harassment. Buffeting. Has He allowed to come into your life? And I want to ask you a really serious question for you to reflect on. Do you resent that or have you received that? That's where he's wanting to work. Yeah, you didn't sign up for that. But he loves you. 
Have you relied on your past sacrifices? Have you been chapter 11 again? Man, look at all these things I've done. God, I ought to not have this thorn because I did all this. I'll do anything for you, God. I'll do anything in the world for you. Why, why do you want to work here, God? Maybe it's spiritual experiences. Man, look at what I've experienced. It's humiliating, God, that I would have this weakness. We have our definitions, processes as a church that we think are very important to identify who a disciple is. This is not someone who raised their hands so they didn't have to go to hell, but it's someone who's truly been born again, who believes Jesus is Lord and submits their life to Him. We believe a disciple is someone who's learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did, to increasingly submit There's all of their life to the Lordship of Christ. We believe that we can talk about how a disciple is made through faithful life alone with Jesus, life on life as disciples, life in community and life on mission. We believe we know what it looks like when somebody's becoming a disciple, if they're embodying the Beatitudes, the fruits of the Spirit, the love we find in 1 Corinthians 13 and an obedience to Christ's commands. We believe that those things are not mere man-made ideas, but they're based on the Word of God. But we can have all of those definitions right. We can train on them. We can talk on them. But at the end of the day, God is the one who is the disciple maker. We don't come to be discipled by a church, first of all. We come to be discipled by Jesus. And He has a curriculum for that discipleship that we don't decide on. And if we don't get that, we will, we will say, peace out when the disillusionment comes. Or we will try to redefine God, redefine the Bible... That works, but it won't work. So what will work? The end of verse 8, or verse 8 and into verses 9 and 10, we see that we submit to God's wielding of our weakness for the growth of our discipleship, not only by understanding that God is the ultimate disciple maker, He's writing the syllabus, He's writing the curriculum, and it's going to be harder than we thought. We're not going to feel like He's helping us, but hurting us, but He loves us. So we have to accept Growth, our growth as disciples, second thing, we do this by accepting our growth as disciples will only be as powerful as the experience of our need for grace. This feels so counterintuitive that your growth as a disciple will only be as powerful as your experience of your need for grace. Not just in the past, but in the present. Paul prays, verse 8, three times that this would be taken away from him. Three times is saying two things, I believe. One is, Paul was persistent in this. This isn't about just counting. The number that says persistent. He pleaded with the Lord. Pleaded. But there's also a sense that this three times points us to the fact that there was an acceptance. Why do I think this? This harkens back to Jesus praying in the garden, right? He prayed three times to the Father. Is there another way? Before he concluded that prayer, there was an acceptance that was there. Now, acceptance is a, is a tricky word. I understand that. Just like in a minute, contentment's going to be a tricky word. It doesn't mean that we necessarily say, this is good, because we never call evil good. But there's an acceptance of how, at least for now, this is how it is. 
Now just imagine Paul. I could write more letters. I could plant more churches, God. Give me relief for your glory. But what is God's response? God's response is no to relief, but it's not just a no, it's a yes. No to relief, but a yes to grace. Sometimes God will say no. Sometimes He gives relief, but sometimes God will say no to relief from our circumstances and our weaknesses, but He always says yes to grace. The question is, did we sign up for more of God or did we just sign up for more of us? It gets revealed in times like these. Did I just want to get to do what I wanted to do or did I want to get put in a place where I experienced God's grace and glory like I never did before? What kind of grace is this? Well, we notice a a few things here. Notice it says it's my grace. This is personal grace. This isn't some distant deity who is playing with us like pieces on a chessboard. No, my grace. I am with you in this. We know that God's grace also is not just personal grace. It's pardoning grace. So wherever in that, that harassment, that trial, that temptation that surrounds those weaknesses, is there's, there's going to be forgiveness for you again and again. It's never going to run out. You may battle this your whole life, but you're never going to get to one point in that battle to where there's not enough forgiveness for you. There's personal grace, there's pardoning grace. But if we read even in Corinthians, we see grace is not just merely about our pardon, but grace is about power. There's sustaining grace, there's enduring grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God I am what I am. Whether it's a mental issue, an emotional issue, a physical issue, an attack issue. And in all these things, not only is it personal, pardoning, empowering, but notice it's sufficient grace. It's plentiful. It's never going to run out. No matter how hard it gets, it will never exhaust the grace of God. So Paul's request is met with God's response, but what's discipleship's reason? Notice the end of verse 9 or in the middle there. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What what does this mean? Isn't God's power already perfect? Well, yeah. What's what's he talking about? He's talking about God's power in Paul. Talking about God's power in you. Made perfect doesn't mean now that we're perfect people. This made perfect language is it's complete In another way that could be translated, it's matured. God matures us as disciples through the experience of grace in the face of our weaknesses, our limitations, our deficiencies, our disabilities. Through thorns. This is not some kind of cruel game. This is God actually wanting us to get in touch with the reality that is ours as humans. 
Sometimes we forget that even before the fall, even before sin entered the world, humans were a people dependent on the grace of God. Being needy is not a bad thing. We were needy before the first bite of that forbidden fruit was taken. The reason that that great rebellion took place is because we don't want to be needy. We want to be God. We want to rule our lives. We don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. We will ascend to the throne of God. We will write out our discipleship story. We will write the syllabus. We will set the curriculum. We will have control. We will look good. And all that is is a pathway to a wasted life and at worst, ultimate and eternal destruction. And God loves us too much to give us that. Knowing, enjoying God is our greatest good, but it also makes us the greatest good for the world. I guarantee you, people are much more attracted to you when they hear what you have to say out of your weakness and your strength. When Jesus becomes the hero of your story and God's grace becomes the locus of your life, there's now where you're ready to be used. Broken, burnout, and bored people don't really want to hear what perfect, proud, polished people have to say. They cannot relate. We don't have to be pretend to relate. God's saying, I got to get you in touch with reality. You need me and my grace. If you've ever played, played baseball, I never, was never great at baseball. I played when I was little, little league. But I remember when you'd buy a new glove. One of the things, if you, if you want to have an epic fail, if you're a parent and you don't know this, is buy your kid a brand new glove and just send them to practice. Baseball gloves, when they're brand new, are stiff and hard. They look pretty. Really beautiful work of art if you think about the stitching and design. But if you send that kid off to that baseball practice with that brand new pretty glove, this is what's going to happen a lot. Ball comes out. Right? It's got to be broke in to serve its purpose. Again, some of you would know more than me, but you, you buy it and then you take it home and you can get oils to help break it in. You put a, I remember putting a ball in it and you'd tie it up. Or you'd, you'd just, you, you do all this breaking in. Because if that glove is going to be used for its purpose, it can't be pretty. Some things can either look beautiful or be beautiful. 
A broke-in baseball glove is a beautiful thing to behold, wielded in the hands of someone who knows how to use it. So are you. So are you. God wants to take that brokenness and wield it by His grace for the good of the world. We could say so much more, but real quickly before the last point. So that situation you're in right now, that you think, if I could just get over that, I could do great things for God. God, if you would just take this away, we could get a lot done. That's probably not the problem for your discipleship. That is the path of your discipleship. Those parents you have, well, there's God's curriculum. I want to work on your heart and relationship with your parents. Like, I don't want to do that. I'll go read a book about emotional health, but I don't want to do that. Those children you have, Man, if they just get their act together, just think of how hospitable we can make our home. Just think of how much more time I would have, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, time out, God says. That's where I want to work. That spouse you have, that relationship you have, those roommates you have, that singleness you have, that loneliness you have, that speech impediment you have, that mental disorder you have, that anxiety you have, that depression you have, those limitations you have. Best I can see, those aren't just problems, that's the path. You can deny it, you can attach it, you can say, I'm going to go work somewhere else. But God, in His love, probably is going to keep bringing that back around. He doesn't want you to punish yourself over it, but He also doesn't want you to polish yourself around it. He wants you to position yourself for His grace. And we don't know what that's going to look like. So this verse, these verses end in this crazy fashion. Man, if anybody thinks the Bible's cookie-cutter and cross-stitched sentimentality, they hadn't read these chapters and verses, and they hadn't read the Bible personally. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses. He says in verse 9, I'll boast more gladly of my weaknesses. What? I just want to tell you guys, I can't say that with full integrity in my life yet. Lord, help my unbelief. I mean, it's one thing to tolerate them. It's another thing to say, I'm going to boast of all this disillusionment, all these weaknesses, all these limitations. Look at this list right here. Weaknesses. Again, this word can be used of mental or physical illness, Matthew 8, 17. It can also be used as a state of timidity, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. So that, that expanded me as I thought about this. So some of you are like, i got this real timid personality. How am I supposed to do all this stuff? I'm an introvert. I have social anxiety. How do I connect with a fight club? How do I connect with a missional community? How do I live life with other people? Well, first of all, we got lots of flexible ways to meet you in that, but it's like, how do I do that? Or it could just be limitations. Insults. I'm content with insults. When's the last time you've been insulted? When's the last time you heard somebody talking bad about you behind your back? 
accusing you, assuming things about you. Hardships, distresses, bad times, persecutions, strategized harassment or harm. You know, Christian persecution complex, right? I don't hear a lot of Christians saying, I'm boasting, I'm content with my persecutions. No, we're a bunch of whiners, grumblers, calamities. This word, behind this word, calamities, is, is like the word a narrow place, like being between a rock and a hard place. I'll just be honest with you guys, I still don't know totally what to do with this. But I know a little bit. What Paul is saying is, I'm content with this, and behind this word contentment, Greek word eudokeo, if that matters to any of you smarty people, he prefers it. He sees it as better. He can accept it, approve of it. Because he knows that it's not in the places where he feels most powerful that God is going to do the greatest work, but it's in the places that he is most weak. The power of Christ is going to rest upon him. What a phrase, rest on me. This is, this is the presence of God coming down on the tabernacle in the Old Testament language. So as Christians, there's, we have a theology, right, that when we become converted, the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. But we have to forget, there's also a doctrine of the manifest presence of the Lord. Sometimes we miss that, and I know in some of our theological circles here, that there's certain, the power of Christ will rest upon me. He's obviously saying it's not always resting on me the same way. That's why he's preferring these, these times where he's, he's brought into such weakness and need and hardship. He's saying that's, that's when the power of Christ comes down and rests on you. Can we trust God? To live the life we've given and not the life we planned. Wendell Berry says. Your discipleship is probably not how you plan. We have these groups in our church we call fight clubs, which are just three to five. Those numbers vary, actually, sometimes from one to ten. But we get together and we want to really go deeper in God's word, but we want to go deeper in our hearts. And if you become a part of one, guess what? It won't be all it's cracked up to be. You could be a part of a missional community. It, like This is where we want to do life on life, life on community, life on mission. It won't be what it's cracked up to be, but guess what? Those are exactly the points where God wants to grow you. We want the plan. We want the curriculum. We want to get it done. We're American Christians, right? Let's make this efficient. Let's, let's have effective leadership. And God just sits in the heaven and laughs. And he says, right at the point of all your frustrations and your weaknesses, there's where I want you to find my grace so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. We have to have a big trust in God to accept this. We have to have a big trust in God to take on this attitude. And that's, that's really the main point of this third thing is like, this becomes my attitude. I'm no longer the person who whines about weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. And if you're new here, we've taken weeks and weeks to talk about being honest about our emotions. So we're not talking about denial. 
We're talking about telling the truth. That was a bad insult. That hurt. This is a hard time. This is a real limitation. I'm sad. I'm lonely. I'm hurt. I'm angry. But God is here with grace. How can we trust God so much that we can be content with these weaknesses that He permits in our lives? We have to remember that all through the Bible, God has always used people who didn't depend on their strength. As one writer says, Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. Mark deserted Paul. Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos' only training was farming. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair, murdered, abused power. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a persecutor. Moses was a murderer. Jonah ran from God's will. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist was a loudmouth. Martha was a worrywart. Noah got drunk. Solomon was too rich. Jesus was too poor. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Peter was afraid of death. And Lazarus was dead. And yet, through all those people's lives, at the place of their weakness, the grace of God shined for His glory and for the good of the world. But even more than all that, if you doubt God's goodness when the torment, harassment comes, we look to Jesus. You know, He was never disillusioned in His own discipleship, but He did in His humanity pray a prayer three times for God to give relief. The Father said no, and Jesus said yes gladly. And why did Jesus say yes? Why did He go to the cross? Was so that we, even in our hardest times, might know that the grace of God is ours. Not because we're good people. Not because we're strong. Not because we have it all together. But because God loves us, and He is for us. That's where the personal grace comes. As Jesus says, I'm coming to be incarnated, to be with you, to be like you. That's where the pardon of grace comes. He goes to the cross and He pays for our sin, past, present, and future. So now how many times we fail in our resentment against God's plan for our discipleship, there's always forgiveness. He rises from the dead and gives us the Spirit so that we are new creations. And so we have an identity that is bigger than our weaknesses, insults, and hardships. And He reigns. He reigns so that we know one day He will return and we won't have to deal with any of this anymore. There's no lo- these lists will be boom, gone. That's how we can trust. John Newton wrote a song. Some of our people are familiar with it, but I want to read it in closing before we come to the Lord's table together. Many of you are familiar with the song Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Many of you you've not been here in the past, may not be familiar with this song the same author wrote. It's called, I Ask the Lord. It says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His praise, His face. There we are. Discipleship. He goes on, "'Twas He who taught me thus to pray, And he, I trust, has answered every prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. 
I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? Here we go. Is in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. To break thy schemes of earthly joy that, they might find, that thou might find thy all in me. The only way we will get there is through the humility that receives God's grace. You've got a choice today. Will I humble myself before the goodness and grace of God or will I harden my heart and walk away? But through the grace of God, we can submit to the, His wielding of our weakness for the growth of our disciples. Father, we thank You you are trustworthy and good as our Father. We confess that we often deeply resent your discipline. We are often children who storm to our room at the plan you have for our lives. But we thank you, God, that you do not leave us nor forsake us. We thank you that that is secured through the finished work of Christ, which we celebrate now through the table our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.